I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome Ian Penman and Adam Mars-Jones this evening. Um, Adam is a renowned novelist and critic. Uh, his most recent novel, uh, Bat Lava Lake, is from uh, Fitzcarraldo. Uh, before that, uh, Box Hill. Um, and before that, in 2019, his collected film journalism from Reaction, um, Second Sight, a beautiful piece of kit. He is also, like Ian, much beloved contributor to the LRB, uh, whose pieces are one of the things that if you see the name in the contributors list, it's one of the first things uh, worth turning to. Ian is the author of It Gets Me Home, This Curving Track, Marvellous collection of essays on uh, music, many of which had been uh, previously printed in the LRB, which we launched in a raucous party in 2019 uh, in this very shop. Uh, last party before COVID, basically. It, it was pretty much, it was pretty much, and I remember it well, with a mix of gladness and uh, melancholy. And it's a joy to have the pair of them back to launch Fassbinder, Thousands of Mirrors, Ian's most recent, uh, most recent book from Fitzcarraldo. Welcome, Ian. Welcome, Adam. <laughs> Thank you. You might not guess from what's just been said that Ian and I have never met before. No. So uh, all we've done is carefully not talk about what we're about to talk about. Oh. But uh, uh, there's a, a biographer called Roger Lewis who started writing about... Anthony Burgess. Anthony Burgess. <laughs> and as a rabbit fan and ended up loathing him pretty much you haven't done that but you've that you've done a sort of micro lewis there's an element that you're exorcising at the same time as trying to defend fassbender how well, did that come about there's two aspects to that one is yes there was I, uh, I loved him when i was younger when i was in my 20s and i thought it'd be interesting to see how i felt about him now and, of course, I think it's natural your feelings would be very different, as it would be about, you know, uh, rebellious rock stars or, you know, TV stars from the 70s who you subsequently discover weren't paragons of virtue. But um, writing the book, yes, there's a lot about how I don't think he was a perfect person or anything, but uh, there's also an aspect where I think uh, I, I admire him even more I think is stunning what he managed to do um, because I've learned from, you know, as we all learn growing up, if you work in the arts, it's very difficult to get anything done, to get a, a personal project done, especially on someone else's money, especially in film and TV. And he was someone who just rode a truck through that and just got all this stuff done who didn't accept no for an answer, who just got an, um, an immense amount of things done. I, mean, I think the figure you give is a film completed every 100 days. And when <laughs> I read that, I thought, typo, typo, but, but it's not. <laughs> not just films, 
TV as well, so theatre as well, interviews as well, kind of political life as well, you know, and, and a, uh, a very um, busy leisure life as well, shall we say. So he, you know, he, he did everything at full throttle. Admittedly, he did die young, but I think... Um, I don't see why biographies shouldn't have these uh, ambivalent feelings. Oh, no. I don't not... see why you shouldn't... And I always felt slightly uneasy about people writing about Fassbinder uh, when they're... Um, people who knew that his personal life was full of co contradictions and cruelties and, oh. you know... So I don't think you should ignore that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you can't kind of... Um, you can't gainsay what he achieved. And I think that's an interesting uh, tension in in the, the current world in which we inhabit, where everyone is either cancelled or kind of uh, a model of virtue. It's, it, to me, it's interesting that someone could be both those things. And it's especially interesting, someone like him, who was kind of... Um, was very much a kind of radical figure, loathed by the right and so on. And uh, although, you know, not uniformly popular with the left either, but uh, who was a kind of... Uh, really industrious in some ways he is the model citizen because he he set out to do things and he did them you know so it's like um he didn't he didn't um in his films he blames everything on the capitalist system basically he basically says there's no hope that you know all our relationships are poisons in advance by capitalism nothing can nothing good can come of it and yet he was the ideal capitalist in a lot of ways. In some ways, you know, he was the ideal worker, you know, although you'd have to define and redefine what work and labour means in that sense, in the art world. He was someone who did this immense amount of stuff while saying it would be impossible to do this immense amount of stuff because cap capitalism is set up to deny people like me to do stuff like this. So it's just, it's just a really interesting tension at at the heart of his life, I think. And the single most surprising fact to me was that he'd been to a Steiner school. Because to me, the idea of little Reiner with a, a wooden <laughs> block with no corners working away is just very hard to imagine that he wouldn't pick it up and try to chip somebody with it. But uh, it, you feel that that is not, you know, that is part of his. That branding. was the turning point, I think, for Steiner School, because he'd been to seven or eight schools before that and they'd all been disastrous. And I think. The reason the Steiner School was uh, worked was because they let him do what he wanted, and uh, I, it's, it's kind of. Uh, I wonder if he didn't suffer from attention deficit <laughs> mm. disorder because even if you you read about his childhood, even then he was doing twelve things at once. Admittedly, and you know he was actually achieving. He would finish them. He would finish projects, but he was always even when he was a child. He was doing three or four things at once and kind of, you know... So, uh, I don't know. And again, that makes me wonder if today he would be identified and given drugs for that and, you know, would identify as this and would that would alter his behaviour, whereas back then he just went straight ahead and did it without worrying if this was what was what was causing this, you know, it's like... So it's, it's a slight question about identity politics, you know, it's like I identify as this. I don't think he identified as anything except himself and just kind of drove a cart and horse through everything. 
And you have to say, even if you don't like his films, you have to say he really achieved an immense amount by, you know, just an astonishing, just what he finished and did. I'm, I'm what, five years older than you, so I saw, I think I saw uh, Fear Eats to Soul when it came out uh, and was very struck with it, but had never seen a Douglas Sirk film, so I didn't know the, not exactly formula, but the set of conventions that he was re-manipulating. And then I saw Bitter Tears, Petra von Kant, which I loved and was very different. Never quite got the pleasure from later ones that I did from, from those, I think, earlier on. Because the, the man is wolf to man idea, it's a theorem that you only need to prove once. Uh, because it is a theorem, and it's there in other works of art. It's there in something like Visconti's *The Damned* in a very different, more florid style. But it is a dead end, and as a dramatic, you know, it doesn't extend your dramatic palette. Uh, do you think there's a repetitiveness of theme that undermines? Yeah, that's the the, the main problem I have with it. I think uh, is that uh, um, I can't remember what the exact quote is, but he's 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 a great theorist of poisons, but not of cures. And he just, he proves over and over again that everything is a dead end. I mean, the, the, the earliest film, Love is Colder Than Death, is like, he's, he's, he just thinks there's no hope, no chance. And, you know, when, when I first came across his films, when I was like 16, 17, 18, 19, that's quite attractive. And you think, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what society's like. <laughs> Fucking right, Rainer. Why don't but, I have a girlfriend? You know, yeah. But if you, you know, if you end up, you know, having a... And he didn't have a long life. So I think my question would be, how much can we trust? Would he have changed? It, it's pointless asking, but he didn't have, you know, a lot of experience of um, that thing where you grow through life and, uh, you know, learn that there are all kinds of shades to these things. So I think looking, it is a problem that I think almost every film is hopeless. I mean, there's a list in the book of how <laughs> films end, and they end with people dead, basically. <laughs> and that's, you know, the happy ones. At least, yeah. but <laughs> it's At like, least then you, you know, know it's over. It's spiritual it? death or physical death or political death or, you know, and it is a problem. And it was, even at the time, he did have his critics saying, well, you know, why are your, uh, especially gay critics, I think, at the time said, well, you know, it's like you're not showing any hope. I, and, I, and I felt that personally yeah. when I saw Fox and His Friends from about yeah. 1976 or something like that, where I thought, well, if we're no different, why represent us at all? Because it was so unusual to have a representation that to have everything immediately ground down to the same powder uh, was, was depressing. And there, there aren't moments, the closest I can think of to a moment when the worm turns, you know, when the apparently weak gets the upper hand, which at least is a variation on the, uh, on the, uh, on the, on the givens, is the moment in Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant where the slave uh, who's been treated as nothing, does it mute completely, doesn't speak at all, or I can't remember? Well, although he actually said that she doesn't turn. She, he says that... And we know, should she, explain she, what the context yeah, is. This she is leaves somebody's... this relationship, and you could you could read the film as she's had enough. I'm not taking this anymore. I'm going off to find my freedom and my desires. He actually says no. She'll go off and find it exactly. She, the reason she's leaving is because the other showed her a tiny bit of recognition. Oh no, that that that, you know, that is yeah, how I read it. I must admit, but, but I she's was... she's going off to find exactly the same relationship uh, somewhere exactly, else. Only with the proper sadist. Who but doesn't those have two films. Thought. I agree with you. Those two films, uh, 
that they're problematic because on the one hand, you know, they are kind of, um, they're not showing a great representation. On the other hand, they, they're full of class, which I think a lot of films at the time weren't. They're very much, you know, it's like, especially Fox and his friends, where you have the middle class mm. uh, who take up this, you know, working class guy, and he's completely lost. He 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 loses through that. But um, but uh, and these things, you know, what I'm saying isn't new. A lot of people said that in the 70s, I think, about his friends. Yeah, I, I, but, I did feel it. But um, I like that. I actually like that aspect of his films, that quality, that it's not settled, you know. But um, it's it's not settled. You mean that there that there are still options? There is well, not settled in the sense that um, no. I mean, there are pro programmatic aspects to it, but it's kind of um, I like the fact that uh, he does um, that. You can come out of the films feeling that this uh, aspect of these relationships is kind of something you can work off. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, one of the things you say in the book is that you chose him as a role model precisely because he was so unsuited to it. If you, if you wanted a role model who would show you, <laughs> who would not moralise, who would not tell you how to behave in a certain way, who would inspire you but not make things, uh, not give you uh, lights to follow, as it were. Uh, well, I think choose is probably overstating it. I mean, again, I think, you know, when you're young like that, these things are attractive for various reasons. And uh, and they seem to have a truth at the time, which, you know, is subsequently not necessarily proven by life. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was very attractive at the time. And uh, do I still think it's attractive? Mm, I don't know. That's what the book was partly about. It was... Because for years I've been telling people, you know, I, you know, in drunken conversations, I'd say, that's been the change my life, you know, it's like... It, and then uh, three years ago, someone finally said to me, what do you mean by that? <laughs> what do you mean? You keep saying this. And I had to actually... And I suddenly... I couldn't actually answer, you know. It was kind of... Um, and it was true. But I had to start thinking, did he change it for good or bad or, you know... It was, it was like... also a sort of... It was part of a constellation of influences. Yeah. Some which involved rejection of a particularly parochial view of culture and politics. In the late 70s, uh, mid... Just uh, to remember the UK, you know, what was the, you know... TV, film, e literature... There, were no, there was nothing exciting, you know, I mean, like... Um, We'd had punk and music, so there's this kind of, you know, rousing aspect of that. But um, I loved film and I loved literature and I wanted, you know, this uh, reflection somewhere. And um, I found it in French books and German films, partly. And uh, I couldn't have articulated it at the time, I think. I mean, for instance, the French books, I think, you know, Derrida and Barth and everything be easy to say, well, I love them because... Um, I think I love them partly because of how they looked. And it was like, you know, just looking at the, the pages, the use of white space, you know, how different they looked from uh, British novels at the time, you know. At the time, I thought, it's like Martin Amos's second novel. Is that the most exciting thing in the world, really? You know, <laughs> and then you come across Roland Barth and Derrida and Julia Christie. No, this is more exciting. You know. Not and the novelists, though. The French novelists didn't particularly... Um, 
Uh, subsequently, yeah. Um, uh, but at the time, it was it was more. Um, no, it was more the theory stuff. But yeah. you you mentioned what what should have been Fassbinder's monument, which is the fifteen-hour Berlin Alexanderplatz, uh, and you're you're not a huge fan of it, nor am I, having been given it as a Christmas present by my <laughs> partner. And we sat down to watch an episode every evening. And then one of us said, and I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't me, said, why don't every evening, why don't we have an episode of Berlin Alexander Platz and an episode of Battlestar Galactica? And so we did that for a while. And then somehow the Fassbinder never found its way yeah, out of the box yeah, yeah. after that. So 15 hours. And he wanted to remake it. Was it with John Malkovich? Was there a No, it was... Um, Oh, was it French actor? Uh, oh. I can't remember. Um, but um, it doesn't. I think it shoots itself in the foot, partly because it doesn't get off to a great start. The first couple of episodes don't kind of draw She's you what, in. Three hours. Yeah, and yeah, hours. and and I think it does work. I think if you can get into it, it does subsequently become really hypnotic. Uh, but I think the first, and again, I, I say in the book. Uh, during lockdown, I thought, right, I'm going to write this book. <laughs> I'm going to look at all these old Fassbinder films. And, uh, and I, I started with Berlin Alexanderplatz, and it was a disaster, because it's like you're locked in a room, you can't go out, you know, with COVID. And then you're watching a film which people are locked in a room and can't go out and scream at each other. We're here forever. We're, we're going to murder each other. And it was just, no, no, it's like... But it does, I mean... It, I have, a, you know, people like Susan Sontag wrote about it and said it was this huge achievement and this beauty. And that was the thing. I think it's more like Visconti and Antonioni, that kind of congealed kind of film as art thing. And I thought Fassbinder was better than that, was more punky. I think he worked better as a kind of punchy, you know, oh, you don't like this one? Another one will be long in a couple of months, <laughs> you know. It's like, you know. And I think... He'd been thinking about Berlin at Alexanderplatz for his whole life almost. And then it was also, it's problematic because it's also the German establishment welcoming them. It's like German TV money saying, right, do this. And um, I think even formally it doesn't work because he shot it like a film, but on at TV it looks really dark. Mm. It literally looks really dark and small and, uh, and claustrophobic. Um, and uh, he seemed to, I don't know, I, he had such a personal reading of it that I, he lost, I mean, if you read the book, the book is a wonderful book. <clears throat> and it's like a great modernist, it's like Ulysses in, in Berlin. It, it, it's like the city is just jumping with life, jumping with headlines and noise and uh, people and politics and... And uh, the film doesn't really capture that, uh, capture that, I don't think. Of that generation of German filmmakers, the film that probably most affected me was Enigma of Kaspar Hauser. And I remember being told by a friend who was, uh, whose mother was German, he was saying, in German romanticism, the grotesque is an aspect of the sublime. And I thought, now I understand why there are <laughs> grotesque things that I'm not meant to laugh at, because... These people can't, you know, something like Heart of Glass. You think, does he not see that there's something funny in here somewhere? <laughs> but there is a that, problem, yeah. Well, no, but I mean, I think it's a real point that, that we think that humour is, is, is 
outside culture, but it's clearly strongly determined by culture. And the idea that there are certain things which are the sublime in disguise rather than intended to make you roll about, which was really interesting. But of that generation, you make the point very strongly that he was the least conscious of nature, the least aware of any possibility sublime. other than, yeah. yes, of the sublime as a place that you might visit on a tram if, uh, if need be. Uh, you, you say there is, is there one picture of Fassbender in the open air, pretty much? <laughs> <laughs> Early on, yeah. Looking Even like then, he's <laughs> trying to turn it into a small <laughs> and city. And he's got his leather jacket on, and he's like, it's like he's hitchhiking to get out of there as soon as possible. Yeah, it's like, yeah. But it is, it is unusual, culturally, but, yeah, to have I that. Mean, and again, that was why I liked it at the time, because I was, you know, 17 years old, and I'd uh, come to London, and I thought the city was where I was at it was at, you know, and so, but again, you know, later on, we discover the sublime and rediscover. I mean, I grew up in, at that time in, in Norfolk, which I hated, you know, loathed. And, um, but, you know, 20 years later, you rediscover locales and places and you rediscover what's good about them and so on. And that is the problem, I think, with Fassbinder is that it's all this, it's all, it's the best thing about him and the worst. You know, it's like um, uh, he gives an absolutely perfect picture of young people in the city tearing each other apart. Mm. But and the unanswerable question is, what would it have been like if he'd lived? Mm. You know, I think. Like I mentioned Genet in the book, because I think that's very similar in a, a lot of ways. Because Genet had the early style, which was very much quite repetitive, and his obsessions, you know. But... Jeunet ended up having like three or four different lives. Astonishing life, because he had these, he, he escaped from each box he was put in and uh, subsequently, you know, embraced politics and embraced, you know, it became almost fatherly in his later life and uh, absolutely, you know, the value of love and revolution and everything. And could that have happened with Fassbinder? You know, it's impossible to say, but, you know, I mean, Genet and Bowie are the examples you give of people who have lived successive lives, but Fassbender doesn't seem to be, does seem to be very much digging his own trench as he goes along. Yeah, but he did die young, so it's, it's hard to I say. Mean, he he did know. see to that, I mean, seemingly. He yeah. did, did, did take care of the time. The, the town did you hated, I think you mentioned had, downstairs, meant had three cinemas and a cinema club. So that is like you know, a dark city with an awful lot of green spaces in it. Huh. Uh, uh, so uh, was that your first exposure to, to films? Or? Um, not really. I, I don't know. Um, I think my first exposure was the thing that determined everything, everything in my life. was uh, Another book? Yeah, <laughs> in the mid-60s, uh, I was in an RAF family and we were in Cyprus. And um, there, was, uh, there was a cinema in Limassol that was literally, it was like an amphitheatre. It was an open-air cinema. And... Um, I remember we, we went to see um, uh, Cape Fear with Robert Mitchum. And, my, uh, and I must have been about six or seven at the time, but it was an X, Cape Fear. Yeah. Remember X's? It's a scary and, uh, film. Pretty and it intense. is scary. It's very, it's very adult. And at a certain point in it, my dad, my Protestant dad, reached over and put his hand <laughs> over and... Now, this is like a Lacanian diagram. If you want someone to be obsessed with cinema and looking in images, what do you do? You do that. You stop them <laughs> seeing what you're supposed to see. It's like a Freudian Lacanian diagram. 
And I've often thought that that's it. That 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 was when it happened. I had a similar. The only other film we saw was uh, Move Over, <laughs> Darling, with Rock Hudson and Doris Day. But I don't think that had quite the. But I have read an academic article that indicates, by analysis of the bachelor pad that Rock Hudson is living in, that everybody knew he was gay. That it's yeah. coded gay very clearly. So perhaps somebody in that audience got that message and <laughs> decided that. Uh, curtains betrayed them or something. The, the similar moment I, I had to your father's uh, hands over your face was I was taken by a friend of the family, elderly uh, and very deaf, so she would tend to say, I don't think much of that hat. Uh, <laughs> uh, she was a liability, but we, she took me to Lord Jim, the Peter O'Toole firm, and at a certain stage she realised he was going to die, and so we left, so I couldn't see him <laughs> die. Uh, which made it far more interesting than it actually... Peter O'Toole did die, didn't well, he? Well, yeah, that, I had worked that out before tonight. The internet is no, good no, for I mean something. actual Peter O'Toole. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, not on set. No, no it, was, it, was to, it was to shield no. me from trauma. Yeah. But the shielding but from yeah, trauma was yeah. much, much, much worse. Yeah. No, but to go back to... I do think it's interesting that the, the small town I live now uh, and it's not that small, it's, you know, it's like, but has no cinemas. But the, the, the dull small town that I lived in the 70s had three cinemas and a cinema society. And um, the cinema society was, you know, showed things like Death in Venice. <laughs> and uh, the, um, the main cinemas, uh, you know, showed things like Taxi Driver and Jaws and everything. Mm. But, and uh, they were, you know, absolutely... That it could support that, but now I don't think most towns have cinemas, do they? I don't know, but um, it's either online or I don't know. I saw the first time I saw uh, Lawrence of Arabia was at a film society, and it took me quite a long. It's a long film, but it took me a long time to realise that they were that the image was too big for the screen and they were constantly moving the... Yeah. So you're <laughs> thinking, why am I seeing so much sand? I mean, I know there's a lot of sand, <laughs> but shouldn't there be a person somewhere in the sand? Oh, there he is. Because they were desperately... Well, there are shots in that film <laughs> yes, where it's the whole I know. point. I know, there, yeah. I know. But I, I do, there's a serious point under all that, which is, I think, we part of the first few generations where, the, I mean, uh, had film and TV that were kind of, you know, and, and, and film was, you know, and TV. I started writing the book and I realised all the, I'd seen all these things when I was fairly young. And I do think, I, I used to think this about, I already had this theory about music, which is like being 11 or something and hearing Roxy music for the first time. I think it's like a seduction in the Freudian sense, is that you're seduced by an adult and your uh, knowledge of things you can have no knowledge about. And it's, it's partly the, the reason that you're so um, uh, into Bowie or Roxy music, but it's also the reason you can't recover. I do think it is slightly, it's almost like, a, I wouldn't say abuse, but it's like, you know, you are very young and you'll be given this vision of the world that you can't possibly understand and you may have to spend the rest of your life working out. And I think film and TV were a bit like that, which is why I put in the book stuff about seeing Auschwitz footage when I was six or something on the TV, just sitting there playing with your Lego and you look up and you see this stunning, you know, uh, and I can still see it in my mind's eye, you know, it's like, so I think there is a whole thing there to do with 
images and 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 uh, how we interact with them and their delivery systems and so on. But uh, as the delivery systems have changed so much, do you think it would be possible to be so obsessed with a single set of artists or images, or would you be led down rabbit hole after rabbit hole and end up diffusing the impact of those first things? Do you think that the force with which these things hit you is not reproducible now? Yeah, I don't think they just hit me. I think it was, no. you know, our generations. I think it was, you know, you would see these things and they had an incredible power, I think, you know, and um, I, that was the thing I'm, you know, writing about Baudelaire or Bowie. People say it was Bowie. They never say, I heard him first. They always say, I saw him on top of the pops. I saw him with his arm around, you know, um, I saw him, uh, it's like, it was like this thing, tea time, family scene, TV, you know, intimacy, and then you have this image beamed in. From where? Where has this image come from? An image that no one can have any uh, pre, um, you, you can't have predicted this image, you know, and then all of a sudden you're all sitting there what, looking at this image, you know, and your father goes that, you know, like, but no. He did that like, to Bowie too. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you should have done, but, but it is like that. I think that's why, you know, it's like because they had this incredible power, I think. But now we live in a world that is all images, you know, it's like everything. And uh, I'm not sure that, you know, it's, I don't know, it's something that's partly, I mean, when I wrote about a piece about <coughs> Baudelaire recently for the LRB, I thought about that too, about how, who were the first people to be photographed? Who were the first people who had kind of rock star images? And it was Sarti and Alfred Jarry and Charles Baudelaire and so on. They were the first people to have an image. And Rambo, of course. And we're still obsessed by them. Those images still have an incredible power, just as uh, Bowie still has an incredible power and um, Robert Mitchum still does. You know, I think they still have... Why? Why should that be when we're now living in a world that's inundated with images? Why should these images from a long time ago still have this real... How? And that applies to Fassbinder's best work as but well. It maybe those photographs gave them more power than it took away, whereas I mean, when Charles Chaplin was the most famous person on earth, he could just smear off the moustache and go out in the street. When the Beatles were the most people, famous people on earth, they could still take a holiday on an island. But now nobody can get away from the drone, yeah. from the, the phone. So the sense that it is impossible to control an image, it may be that Bowie was one of the last people to be able to so comprehensively radiate the images he wanted uh, because there are very few pictures of him that he didn't authorise or wouldn't have. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, I think that's a problem with Fassbinder. And again, that's one of the reasons I love Jeunet is because he escaped from it. He escaped from his image. And I think uh, uh, Fassbinder didn't. And other examples, Serge Gainsbourg or... There are people, even Baudelaire, you don't escape from your image, you, you become this image. And I think um, it can literally kill people, that sense, I think. You know, quote, so. uh, there was a lovely quote you, you have from Fassbinder where he says he wants to be on the cover of Time. Ugly, ugly on the cover of ugly Time. Ugly on yeah. the cover of Time. My favourite quote of all time. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, Sean, because it does suggest he did have the sense that he could escape by, yeah. on the Blake principle of you know, if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. If you become, if you persist in your ugliness, you'll become. But it's, a, it's a partly. I think that's partly drug addict um, illusion, delusion. Um, there was um, one of his friends made a documentary on him in the last days, 
the Wizard of Babylon, and uh, which is subsequently his mother and the foundation have subsequently sued them and taken the footage out. But there was footage of Fassbinder looking ugly and really drugged and really drunk and a mess. And that's, it's not a good thing, I don't think. I think his idea that you could be ugly on the cover of Time was that it would be splendid and sublime. But I, I think it rarely looks sublime. I think it looks ugly and messy and, you know, I don't know. At the time, you know, in the 1980s, I would have said he was a hero for this stuff. But again, and come back to, uh, you know, if you don't die young and you look back on it, do you think it's wonderful? Mm, I'm not sure. Is it a recipe for a great life? Mm, yeah. I mean, he, he worked with the same people so much of the time. That must have been a, a sort of substitute family and, and you've noticed the way they often work together even without Fassbender or that he might appear in something and bring them along to make sure they got work when he wasn't there so that seems as close to a nurturing side of him as we see to nurture a group even if it was a group that was feeding his ego it, it's I mean this isn't I agree this is not faint praise this is faint yeah, praise as a, I know as, sure no, because think he was, was like they were all dependent on him I think it was a dependency culture I don't think he was nurturing in the lead. I don't think he had a nurturing bone in his body. But, but he was. And for years, I quite liked that about him. I mean, I did. I kind of liked it. You know, it's like it went against the culture. You know, it's like, and it wouldn't be allowed today. It would be a scandal. You know, it's like each day I find a new person I like has been. You know, there's a new scandal about sexual abuse, or you know, it's like um, F. Murray Abraham is the latest one. <laughs> But um, at the time, I quite liked it. It wouldn't would it would it be allowed today? Would he be allowed to abuse so many people? I don't know. But you know, I mean, they were all dependent on him for work to an extent, and it was kind of it was deeply dysfunctional, as we would now describe it. But I, I have a, still have a slight suspicion of words like that of dysfunctional, and you know, it's like I think people often choose that. You know, I think a lot of people in his orbit chose that because it was more intense than other orbits, you know, it was like... But again, again, as I keep saying, it comes back, you can do that when you're young, but could it have gone on like that? I, d I don't think it, any of them... I mean, a lot of them subsequently had really good careers, you know, in... Uh, uh, you make the point that he spent, he seems not to have saved, there was no sense of tomorrow, and yet he, he didn't buy anything. He, he didn't accumulate. No. He inhaled for a good But as if he needed to, to process it. He needed to get the money in and out somehow yep. rather than either not earn or save, as if they're, they're both forbidden to him, to be lazy or to accumulate. Yeah, and again, I kind of like that even now, you know, in which we have this neoliberal world in which even, you know, even the most left, wing thing is I don't even the, it's kind of to live a sensible life you know life is much more sensible now and I do have even though I've cleaned up myself and even though I recognize the, the poisonous aspects of him I still have a slight nostalgia for the fact that someone like him could exist and uh, you know could could be so vociferous you know and it's one thing to have lots of kind of small rock bands or small authors or small left-wing circles being vociferous because only a, they're a small circle of people. 
the thing that was great about Fassbinder, he was incredibly vociferous and left-wing, and he had this huge popular audience, you know, it was, and it was that combination, I think, that was so magnetic, you know. You, you quote a headline which is something like, will there be an ind inundation of proles <laughs> or something, that he was somehow... Well, he was great, he was a pro, he's an autodidact, who I, which, you know, I love, and, and um, but, and other left-wing, supposedly left-wing filmmakers would bring out a great film every six years or something and do nice interviews. And you know. I liked the fact that he did it much more kind of like a rock band, putting out singles. And oh, that's kind Because of, I think that in <laughs> itself was uh, kind of went against the grain, but, yeah. And there is the sense that it's an almost inexhaustible archive and we don't have to watch better than Alexander Platt's. I saw Word, uh, World on a Wire a few years Fantastic. ago. Fantastic. I mean, it, it is from a book that clearly has the ideas in it and it already been filmed, but do mm. you know this uh, at all? The very prescient film about, about alternate realities, about the internet, yeah. about everybody living in a computer in effect, uh, but very nicely uh, made for state television. And the third two, generation as well. Parts. Third There's generation, I haven't two seen. Two or three films that are really, you know, and the fact that he was doing it so quickly, you'd think, well, they wouldn't be so prescient, they wouldn't be so considered, but, you know, there was a period when he was really good at that, I think. I still haven't seen everything. <laughs> but So that would be on the shortlist, would be the third generation, and you single out uh, Germany in Autumn, his segment of that, even though it's a compound film, sort of commissioned, it, it's incredibly yeah. revealing from the sounds of things. Well, you mean my favourite? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, yes, I mean, well, I mean, I mean if, if people want to start yeah. somewhere. Germany in Autumn is, is weird because it was a film that was made by like, I think, six, seven, eight different directors. It was like the politics of um, West Germany in the late 70s. They said we should do a collective film. I think there'd previously been one in France in 68. And uh, you know, and a lot of the people that a lot of the other parts of the film are very considered and very political and very and a snooze, to be honest. And, and they open that they make the mistake of opening with Fassbinder, <laughs> and it's this just twenty minutes, like a twenty-minute scream almost. You know, it's like, and he just you know grabs you and won't let go, and it's the first twenty, twenty-five minutes are just fantastic, and everything else. So he's fighting with his mother. He's waiting for his drugs to arrive. It's all set in his, uh, you know, it's all set in his flat. And by this point, he was very successful. But it's this horrible, grungy, small flat, and you can smell the cigarette smoke and the sweat. And um, it's not beautifully decorated or anything, you know. And he's arguing with his lover and and having a huge fight with his mum. He, he phones up and buys drugs and then hears police siren and flushes the drugs down the toilet. <laughs> he's naked, he's playing with his balls, he's like, you know, he's kind of sweaty and, and he's just like, you think, and at the time, you know, it's like the idea that this, all the rest of the film is probably more considered in terms of politics and stuff, but it was like the idea that this could be political. And again, that's an ambivalent thing in the book. It's like, to me, that's a turning point almost. It's like, well, it was. I mean, it was stunning to see that. And you think, well, why haven't I seen anything like this before? And that is, the personal is political and so on, which was a uh, phrase at the time, you know. And then you think, well, it's also a turning point into which people went into the personal is political and drugs and mysticism and, you know, and left the political behind. And it is a problem, I think. Um, 
I, but just... it is stunning. It's it's like, and I hadn't seen it since 1978. And I looked at it, oh, you know, on YouTube. And it is, it still has that. It's very rare, I think. It still has that incredible um, energy and pull. And you, you inspired me to, to look it up, but I couldn't find it. I got something called Autumn in Germany, which was very soothing indeed. <laughs> <laughs> like an ambient it was spa <laughs> thing, is it? <laughs> you mentioned the cigarette smoke, and I can't help feeling from your description that, that smoking while watching films was almost as important to you as it was to Fassbinder. You mentioned your last cigarette, but you haven't said it's your final cigarette. Are you still... Oh, no, I'm still... Yeah, I've managed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, funnily enough, at the time, I didn't smoke uh, in the 70s, early 80s. I didn't. So it was subsequently. But um, uh, no, uh, 18 <laughs> months and I still haven't... Yeah. <laughs> well, you deserve Hit a round of applause. therapy, folks, if anyone's still smoking. <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Well, you deserve a round of applause anywhere, but perhaps we should ask for a question if we've got our rover willing to, if the Mars rover is willing to. Oh, we've got Tom over there. Microphone coming your way, sir. I guess I have um, two, two questions. You, you talked about how you don't find Berlin Alexanderplatz is the mo close to one of his most successful films, but it strikes me that Effie Briest is such a powerful film. And it's almost the opposite of um, Deutschland and Nerbs, the, the Germany in Autumn, right? It's, a, it's an unbelievable that the same person makes that film and then yeah. these beautiful monologues, and he does the monologues himself in Effie Briest, right? And, um, and I'm just curious, you know, wh why you think he was drawn to Fontana, you know? I mean, because Fontana is a kind of gentle ironist of the Prussian state of curious affinity. And I'm just curious what you make of the affinity between Fontana and, and, um, and uh, Fassbinder. And then my second question is, I, I love Third Generation as well. I was, how do you, you know, think of somebody like, like Godard in comparison to, to Fassbinder, you know, La Chinoise compared to, to, to Third Generation. Like, yeah, I'm just curious how you, how you think of them in, in opposition or, or, you know, what your, how you kind of compare them in your mind. Well, to take the second one first, I think, um, uh, I remember from his interviews that Fassbinder had very ambivalent feelings about Godard and he loved, practically his favourite film ever was Vivre Sa Vie, which he said he'd seen something like 28 times or something. And 
but he was very unhappy with other Godard stuff, especially the political stuff. I think the reason he liked Viva Savi, which has got the beautiful, I don't know if you remember, it's got the beautiful uh, shot of Anna Karina in the, in the cinema crying as she watches uh, the film, which he then put in his own film, Veronica Voss. I think he liked, I think he liked that film because it actually had emotion in. I don't think he liked Godard, the Godard who was uh, too theory heavy and too kind of dry and so on. I think that feeds into your first question. I think the interesting thing about Effie Briest and Berlin Alexanderplatz is he does the voiceover in both of them and he puts his voice into it. And I think that's partly, um, again, it's a good thing and a bad thing, I think, is that he's he, autodidact, as am I. He grew up with films and books that meant an immense amount to him. And when he came to make them, he had to inject himself into them and make them personal. And um, Effie Bruce is definitely the much better work of art, I think, is much more successful because he had more distance from it, I think. It is pretty much a classical film. Yeah, it's it is. beautiful. I mean, it's like, um, and it's also got a woman in it, I think, as, as a central character. And I think he manages to navigate that thing of being trapped and being claustrophobia in a way that's beautiful, whereas in some of the other films, it's not, it's just trapped and claustrophobic, which it is in, in Berlin, Alexanderplatz, I think. I think he'd been, a, I don't think he had enough distance. If you read interviews with him, you know, he, he's absolutely obsessed with the uh, Berlin, Alexanderplatz, with a central, um, not central, with the relationship between uh, the two men in it. And he makes that, he makes Berlin Alexander Pats almost about that and leaves out all the other stuff. Whereas in Effie Briest, you get the sense of the society and the, the trap, you know, and it's like, uh, I think he was too close to, in Berlin Alexander Pats, but yeah. There's a gentleman here. Oh, you're getting a microphone. Mm. We spare no expense. Visual style. Well, um, no, I mean it changed over. You know, the early stuff was very different. The, the early it started in the theatre, and it was a question of arranging people, arranging bodies. I think if you look at the early films, it's it's very spare, and um, there wasn't a lot of money, obviously. Um, and then as it goes on, he le he learns on the job, which is very impressive, I think. You know, and. Uh, by the end, I mean, if you look at his first film from like 69, I think, 70, which is in black and white and is set in Berlin, a very recognisable street. It's a bunch of young people standing in the street, smoking and arguing. And, and um, it's very... Uh... And then you look at his last film, Corel. You can't imagine two more different things, you know. I think he lost something towards the end. I think it, if you look at Corel, it's like, it's, you can see where the money went and it's kind of very beautifully technically done. But I don't, I think it's, it's become like a jelly. A surf, but he didn't really understand what surf was all about. I, I don't know about that. I think they got very friendly and uh, he interviewed Cirque. And I think, uh, I think at his best, uh, he's very, um, is there a point in Fassbinder's film where the camera becomes a character, if you see what I mean? In yeah, his well, I think the, the precise point is Chinese roulette, uh, where it becomes 
And uh, that's also the film, apparently, where that's where the drugs came in. And uh, it becomes moving the camera and editing for the sake of it almost. And it's very claustrophobic and it's very... Um, uh, again, it's a film I, I can be obsessed with, but I don't like. Uh, it's not a likeable film. It's kind of very... Um, you feel as if you... It's like a paper cut. You feel as if you put your finger on it, you'd get... You'd draw blood. And... Um, Whereas with Effie Breast and certain of the other earlier films and Fear Eats the Soul, it's just, you know, heartbreaking. And uh, In a Year of Thirteen Moons, which is another one of my favourite films, and uh, these are real people, I think. Whereas towards the end, I think, the style became too much and the people got lost, I think. I don't know. Do you like Quarrel? Uh, I, no, I didn't like it. I felt sorry for Jean Moreau. And I felt yeah. sorry for Franco Nero, who'd been promised a bigger role in the next film. So <laughs> that's tough on you that he died. Yeah. Uh, but I also it's not a great book. Yeah. No, no, it's not a great book. Either, I just remember but... the, the French gay press, there was a paper called Gay Pied, which is French for a hornet's nest, uh, but spelled differently. And they, uh, they, they sold the shirts that uh, Brad Davis wore <laughs> with the slogan, Carrelez-vous. <laughs> Be your own Carrel. Uh, maybe the same as you had the phrase, well, bodybuilding. I think that's the most effect that film has had. It's, yeah? It's okay. been on kind okay. of adverts and, okay. uh, yeah. No, I didn't like it, but then I know that with gay material, uh, I'm even more impossible in the demands I make on a visual statement because I feel personally involved. I want to be validated but not patronised and I'll find a way to dislike it one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have another question, perhaps a final question? We've... Yes. Oui, oui. We've answered all questions. Claire, you're obviously a plan. <laughs> Gentlemen here. <laughs> a, couple of, a couple of points I want to kind of argue the toss with you over. One is to do with a kind of seminess about Fassbinder. I think, as has already come out in the questions about things like Effie Brace and Carell, that there's an enormous variety in Fassbinder. And even if there is a similarity in theme around the idea of ultimately of hopelessness, of entrapment, his artistic invention, film after film after film, as you say, average time 100 days, some shot in 20 days, is just, we've seen nothing like this in the history of cinema. Mm. And, and I think that, that it is true that he was an obsessive filmmaker who went back again and again and again to the same themes. But cinematically, he was endlessly brilliant. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. I mean, even, you know, even towards the end, I mean, I think uh, Veronica Voss, which is, again, another one of my favourites, was towards... I, I don't like Carell. There's a number of films towards the end that I don't like, but Veronica Voss, I think, is beautiful. And, uh, and moving. And I think that was partly... There's a number of variables. One of them is using actors outside his circle and so on. I think he was too comfortable within his little circle. And I don't think Fassbender I, was ever comfortable. Well, yeah. But I think he was comfortable. That's the problem, I think, partly, is that he was happy being unhappy, you know. I, I, but, I disagree. Well, yeah. and um, a, can a, I just ask one other question, we, or, or make one other comment, hmm. which is, from a political point of view, I think one of the things that hasn't been uh, perhaps touched upon tonight is that I think if there was a political dimension to him, it was that he was an anarchist. 
And anarchists are always unhappy because there's nothing really to do with your anarchism except to continuously kind of berate the world and, and try to find structures, but then again you immediately reject structures because you're an anarchist. And so it's very difficult to kind of get a purchase on any of the things that you are outraged by. Um, but in particular, I would say that there's a great consistency in Fassbinder's work, and again, something that hasn't been mentioned, around what is essentially his, his, his revolt against what you might call neo-Nazism. The fact that post-war West Germany was, in his eyes and in the eyes of other left-wing critics, very much perceived as a world reconstructed with the very people who had yeah. you know, been, been part of the old, old regime. And, and, and that is another consistency in his films, whether the films are overtly political or, in, or indirectly political. There is this profound objection to the new West Germany because of its foundations. Yeah, again, I wouldn't disagree, but uh, I think his politics are very ambivalent and ambiguous, and um, I think he liked being in the heart of it. And, and being, I don't think he would have been happy with the Germany that subsequently, more recently, has come to terms more with it and has been a model in a way. I mean, you know, Germany isn't perfect or anything, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's tried in a lot of ways to, to come to terms with that stuff. That's what I meant about him being happy, being unhappy. I think he... Um, but, and I don't think... And the, the anarchism as well, again, it's an unanswerable question, but that's one of the reasons I have other people in the book, like Straub, Hule and Genet and people as alternative, and Alexander Kluger, another West German filmmaker, because they managed to have long, long, long careers and managed to hold on to their political principles and managed to infuse their work with those political principles in a way that... And, and if you're being really, you know, cruel with Fassbinder, you'd say, well, he didn't. He was, he was too... He liked the glamour of cinema too much. Uh, I think there's a quote from one of his friends in it where he said he was Marilyn Monroe, he wanted to be Marilyn Monroe, and he wanted to be Marilyn Monroe of the left or the anarchism or something. He didn't want to do the boring, you know, long... Th and again, that's, yes, you know, I think it's unanswerable, it's a tension at the heart of him and what makes him magnetic, but is he a good role model for that reason? You know, yeah. It's more like one of those people we all knew in our teenage years who was really magnetic was really good at bringing people together. Let's, let's do a protest, you know, it's like whatever. It's like, but then kind of, you know, it all falls apart at a certain point, you know, because there's the boring work to do. Revolution can only be boring, in a sense, patient, boring work each day, you know. I don't think Fassbinder would have been any, any good at that, but... I think it's time to say thank you very much <laughs> to Ian Penman for being... <laughs> very good guy. Very good help. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.